Ho, ho, ho. Merry Christmas. Jingle bells all the way. Christmas coming two times this year. Literally today, December 24th. And also because we have a very, very, very special guest here with us today. Yo, Tom Confino. Hello, Ames. Lovely to be here. We are so excited that you're here with us. Thank you. I'm thrilled. I love podcasts. I want to introduce you. And then it's like, should I go from the personal or from like the global macro? Maybe the global macro. Yotam Confino is a brilliant freelance correspondent for print, TV, and radio. He works for Danish, British, American, and Israeli media, foreign editor of Jewish News. Lately, He's been covering the war for the BBC, the Times Radio, Talk TV, CBS News, amongst others, and not a journalist by education. Uh, Yotam has a master's in security and diplomacy from Tel Aviv University and a BA in international studies from a school in Denmark whose name I can't pronounce. <laughs> because of the horrific language, yes. Roskilde University. I can't do that. <laughs> no. <laughs> Yo, Tom and I met at Haaretz in late 2020, where we were both editors on the Haaretz.com breaking news desk. That was during Corona. Then there was 2021, which we'll get into in a bit. And honestly, I couldn't have predicted this at all. Absolutely not. So Merry Christmas. Ho, ho, ho. Welcome to October 7th, Emotionally Raw Coverage from Door Comet and me, Amy Sapan. Today's December 24th. It's the 79th day of the war, Sunday afternoon, approximately two o'clock in the afternoon. Very rainy, cold storm happening. No snow, but a little bit Christmassy. And it's the 33rd episode, which was Jesus's age when he died on the cross. So there's a lot of like convergence of symbols coming together here and now. Um, I just can't believe you're here with us. Like, holy moly. I want to talk to you about so many things. You had that incredible interview with Piers Morgan talking about the shifting role of journalists during this war. You're experiencing this from so many different levels. <sighs> Is there anywhere that you'd like to jump into stuff or should I just like? Well, first I want to say that this, the coverage of this war has been absolutely insane on so many levels. I don't even know where to begin because nobody was prepared for this war, obviously. But what came after the aftermath of the coverage, the hatred, the global hatred on obviously on both sides, but these mass repercussions for the entire world because of this war is something I don't think any, any journalist was prepared uh, to handle. And that's why a lot of us are emotionally and physically overwhelmed and exhausted. You've been at it for almost 80 days straight. I had one brief uh, day off completely, but then mostly from morning till evening. And uh, needless to say, it's it's exhausting. Uh, but I think most journalists really, who live here at least, have gone through the same as I have. It's wild. It's because, you know, I want to draw the camera back a little bit, the camera lens, because I say almost 80 days, but that's not even 
taking into account this crazy year that we've had, 2021 conflict, which you covered not only in the newsroom over at Haaretz, but actually with live hits down at the border, I recall from back then, um, years, basically. How many years have you been a journalist here? Not that many, actually. Six years. <laughs> but you just like, you just like shot to the, okay. Well, it's the place to be if you want to cover uh, stories that the entire world uh, want to hear about. This is the place to be. And especially this war. Other than the Ukraine-Russia war, I don't recall any war that has drawn so much global attention, media-wise, when it comes to the international system, the UN, uh, people in general on the street, public opinion, everyone's got something to say about this. It's wild because you are also, you're within the inner, inner ring. I mean, if I recall correctly, you were one of the first 100 journalists to have seen the 47 minute video of the atrocities. Yeah. And the, like I explained also in that interview with Piers Morgan, the only reason why I did it was because we were being bombarded as journalists by campaigns that were trying to sow doubt about what happened on October 7th. And we quickly, quickly realized that they don't trust the eyewitnesses that we speak to, which means that we need to see this footage ourselves. And I think most of us were outraged that we've gotten to this point where we had to sit down for 43 minutes and watch ISIS-style clips one after another. I don't recall that being um, a normal thing to do in any war. I don't recall in Iraq that they did it. Maybe I'm wrong, but I don't recall that. It's quite extraordinary. And I was full of anger over what I saw but over the fact that people don't believe this and that I have to go through this and see it myself in order to try to convince them. But I quickly realized that it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you've seen it yourself. They don't, the people who don't believe what happened will never trust what you say, what any eyewitnesses say, even if they have the evidence right in front of them. They will always come up with an excuse. It's AI, it's fake, it's orchestrated. So in a way, it was, um, it, it, I would say it made some change. I did uh, influence, in a way, other people by telling these stories. A lot of people were, it was an eye-opener for them, but many people still continued with this campaign to basically dismiss it as uh, fake news. Someone named something on my name in the podcast. I speak on thing in the... What's happening? Well, Dora24 is this amazingly generous offer from the fine folk over at Zahav Jewelry. No, but what is the joke? Why 24? I guess it's available 24-7. But, you know, oh. door, like D-O-R, not like a door you walk through. D-O-R. You know, you know what your name means, but our listeners probably don't know what your name is, means. Door, your name means generation. And there's something so profound about what we're doing here, like being a voice of our generation about everything going on here. But also, solid gold is something that goes from generation to generation. It's the stuff that lasts. It outlasts a generation and can get and can be passed down between them. 
Well, I don't feel like any voice of any generation. And also, like, I'm really impressed from your storytelling skills to connect between generation and gold. I mean, uh, anyway, zavjewelry.com. That's the shit. big fan i've been watching a lot of your like live hits on bbc and you're so poised and articulate and really hats off and to be doing it while living here with us in these threats you know and it really what you said there and correct me if i'm wrong you had said it used to be enough for me to speak to the eyewitnesses and now i've become a forensics expert or you know i have to become like an amateur forensics expert and even that's not enough. Exactly. It's that underlying racism that exploded, or anti-Semitism rather, which exploded after this war erupted. The fact that you can't trust an eyewitness because that eyewitness is Jewish or Israeli, it doesn't matter. That in itself is abhorrent. And you also saw the silence from the international system in general uh, when it came to the sexual violence, which is a whole different chapter of all of... Uh, the atrocities committed. But also if you think about how unprecedented that assault on October 7th was, we have to go back to 9-11 to see something relatively similar to that. It became a footnote in the coverage of the war after about, I would say, 10, 10 days, two weeks. People had forgotten about it. It was rarely mentioned. And then it was the, the entire focus was on Gaza. That I realized it, was just, it told me that something is wrong here. After 9-11, nobody forgot what had happened. It's not like two weeks later they were like, oh, all right, well, now they're starting to go into Iraq and Afghanistan. I know that happened later, but still. The attention, the, the mentioning of 9-11, for example, continued for years because people had to remember, oh, that's why we're at war. Whereas here... Israel had to remind, constantly remind the world what happened, because if they didn't, it would be forgotten and it would just be a footnote in the coverage. It is so interesting, the overtures to 9-11. Um, I was in high school when 9-11 happened. And I remember I was always into the news. Also, like as a small kid, I used to listen to that news on AM radio with my dad. And after 9-11, it was, a, it was completely different news coverage. Like everything became 24 seven and every, there were, we had alerts on TV, like the orange alert or the green alert, the red alert, like this kind of level of perceived terror or the terror risk for that day. And I, I tried like going on YouTube a few weeks ago to find like, what was news coverage like on September 12th? Like, what did that look like? And I really wonder like, 9-11, World War II, these other points in time. I don't think we've ever seen anything like this kind of, I don't even want to call it balanced coverage. Like we're seeing panels on cable TV networks where they're inviting these like pro-Hamas propagandists onto these Western news shows. And I really sit there and I wonder like, oh, if they had had these shows during World War II, would they have like invited Goebbels on the air you know, would they be having just like, like a time, just like, thank you so much for coming in today. Would they have like, I don't even know, like, was anyone bringing in someone that 
was connected to the beheading videos from ISIS. Can you imagine how absurd it would be like, thank you so much for joining us for our, our viewers that like aren't aware or maybe like don't know him by name. This guy was responsible for the ISIS beheading videos. Thank you so much for making time and coming into our studio today. Like, what am I watching half the time? I don't really get it in the name of this balanced cover. Like what is going on? Yo, Tom, before, before you answer, I'm so sorry for the background noise. It's, uh, there's rain and there's storm and everything, but uh, people are still going to drill. They're still going to build. What, what are you going to do? We can't, we can't We're in Tel Aviv. Life. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> life goes on. Especially in Tel Aviv construction. Ex exactly. It's a really good point about this whole thing Would Goebbels had been invited into a I think the reason why Hamas officials are invited into all these panels and they're being interviewed is because people do not see Hamas as Al-Qaeda, Islamic State, or as the Nazis. They don't, they don't consider them the same level of, of evil. They just don't. Which is why for them it's, well, well, Hamas is a part of the war. Of course they should be questioned. Of course they should be interviewed. Of course we should also listen to what they have to say. If you take Hamas out and you replace Hamas with ISIS, you wouldn't have an ISIS leader sitting on some network being interviewed by, it doesn't matter. It, it, it just wouldn't happen. Again, people don't understand what Hamas actually is because people always associate Hamas with the struggle, the Palestinian struggle. Obviously, it's a, it's a designated terror organization by many countries. Still, I think it will take a lot of time before people really realize what kind of organization that we're dealing with. It is not any different from Al-Qaeda or Islamic State when it comes to the brutality. And lately, it's also shown that it has the same aspirations when it comes to spreading Islam. It's not a national resistance movement. It is openly preaching that Islam should be spread to Europe, to to, to the United States, that Muslims should rise. So until people realize that that is the nature of Hamas, they will continue to invite these people in just to hear the other side of the story. And that's why Israelis obviously are uproared. Like you said, would you invite uh, Yosef Goebbels in? I don't think so. Maybe there was an interview back in the day with Goebbels in some uh, American outlet. I do not think that that was a very normal thing. Maybe I'm absolutely wrong, but today you see Hamas officials going on air all the time. Western media, and they're being listened to. Obviously, they're being questioned and challenged, but it's quite extraordinary, really. It's it's truly incredible. Like last night I watched, Pierce had Chank from Young Turks and um, Douglas Murray on. And he was like, for our last show of the season, we brought in... Douglas and Chenk, they haven't been on the panel together on my show, but they've both been, you know, the most like out there verbal about it. He didn't say it in those words, obviously, but anyway, he brought them together and I was watching it and I was just like, Ooh, you know, there's so much misinformation spread on these panels. And then, so it's not even a matter of like, now we're going to have a conversation and everybody's using like facts that we can rally behind. No, there's just misinformation. So then the other panelist has to decide essentially, am I going to take them to town for this bullshit that they're saying? But then they're going to call me a monster for, for calling them out on it. And then 
you don't ever get into real discourse because 85% or 90% of the energy has to be allocated to kind of knocking down misinformation that gets more airtime than it would have gotten otherwise. And then it just does more damage because if the other person knocks them down, you know, Chenk just called Douglas Murray. I guess he was like, you're a monster. You don't care about these lives. And Douglas is like, no, that's not what I'm saying at all. And then it becomes this kind of like, what was the whole point of this exercise? Now there's going to be what a million uh, new like pro Hamasers watching because they watch this on TV and they, they like Chenk's personality more because they think, you know, the guy gets so agitated he's, he looks like he's about to have a heart attack any second. So he must be more for real than this other guy that's sitting more like even keeled. Right. It just defies, it defies logic. You, you think back to world war II propaganda, Lenny Riefenstahl had those amazing films, right? Like she's, she's considered an extraordinary filmmaker and the time she lived in, she had to make Nazi propaganda. And you think back to back then, the people that saw Lenny's work were in Germany or they were in, you know, like one of the Axis controlled states by then. And they're watching it as part of the newsreels before a movie comes on. And it's not, it's not like American audiences were watching it. Like they weren't going to the movie house and then they were like, Ooh, we're going to put on some U S war coverage. And alongside it, we're going to bring in a special, real from Lenny Riefenstahl over in like, what is, I don't even understand what's going on. And, and doesn't it also kind of shoot Europe in the foot to have, I, that's what defies expectation for, I mean, that defies logic to me and common sense. It's like, if you're in Europe and this is a threat and they're calling for intifada in fucking Europe, why are you going to go have that on your show? Like, why are you going to like try to, 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 to support that or condone that or like pretend it's legitimate? I guess they're trying to stave off a bigger risk that they're seeing. Uh, maybe they perceive a bigger risk by like, if we don't have them on at all, no one will take us seriously or they won't. I guess that must maybe, I'm trying to think of That's like, why. That's part of the reason why they bring them on. The thing is that when they bring other Palestinian representatives on, from the PA, for example, sometimes they can't get themselves to ju to condemn what happened on October 7th. So wh where do you even begin to find a voice on the other side that's reasonable to have on air when you cannot condemn one of the worst atrocities committed on October 7th? That's really difficult. Obviously, there are brilliant uh, people on the other side of the spectrum who, who argue the Palestinian cause in a very articulate and, and clever way, obviously. But when you bring these people on who are spreading disinformation, spreading hate, and basically making a moral comparison between Israel and Hamas, then you are you're changing the way people look at this situation. You're helping normalize a comparison between Israel and Hamas. Those two actors are not the same. Whether you, It doesn't matter how much you hate Israel. It doesn't matter. You cannot compare Hamas to Israel. But if you ask people today on the street, a lot of people will say, well, they're equally bad. They just bomb from the air. That's the difference. It's a state, it's a state uh, terrorist actor, basically, is what they're saying. When you talk about, like, the average person or these panelists can't condone, I mean we're living in a world where the United Nations won't barely condone it. UN women 
what have they have they sent out a formal statement yet? Yes, it was like three line. ChatGPT might have done a better job at writing it <laughs> and, and faster, right? Like it, it was took, something like we are. Uh, I don't even remember what they said. It was some equivocal crap, you know. First of all, it took about two months, I think, right. before they actually said anything. And second of all, it makes our job as journalists incredibly hard when the institution that's supposed to be neutral and the institution that gives us a lot of information from Gaza is extremely morally skewed. When you look at the UN Security Council and the fact that they cannot bring a passive resolution that condemns Hamas atrocities, that tells you everything you need to know. It tells you everything you need to know when you have the UN Human Rights Council, you have Iran, these actors in there that are supposed to be morally <laughs> responsible, but their human rights records are the worst in the world. That's just one example. But but also when you look at the language coming from the UN, obviously the United Nations has to take care of the civilians in Gaza. Goes without saying. There are millions of people suffering in there. That's not the question. But when you look at the language, the statements they send out, I just did it before, we, before I got here. I looked at Antonio Guterres' uh, Twitter from the past three weeks. Twice he's mentioning uh, the hostages. Twice. The hostages are right now going through something that few people on earth are going through. They're held hostage by a terrorist organization. They are starving. The Palestinians in Gaza are starving, but so are the hostages. We know that from the people who are released. They're being, they're starving because Hamas is, is you know, punishing them. They're exposed to sexual assault. The worst things you can imagine, and it's 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 more than a hundred people still in there, and and yet in the past three weeks he mentioned them twice. He mentioned the humanitarian catastrophe for the Palestinians in Gaza eight times. I know that there are more people in Gaza, the Palestinians, there are more of them suffering, but it doesn't change the fact that you have two humanitarian catastrophes playing out at the same time, and if the UN clearly is not focusing very much on that, not giving it the attention it deserves, then there's a problem. You're supposed to be a neutral actor. You're supposed to be um, someone that journalists can rely on for reliable information. And there's a whole other thing about the aid coming in, the humanitarian aid coming in. I do not understand how the United Nations can stand on the sideline watching Hamas terrorists take over humanitarian trucks and just steal it. Nobody, they're not saying anything. This is, this is appalling. This humanitarian aid is supposed to go to the civilians. And a whole different thing. When evidence keep coming out of Gaza of Hamas using UN facilities for military purposes, and that's not Israel saying that. It's the European Union. It's the United States. At this point, we know Hamas is using uh, UN facilities for warfare, to store weapons or whatever. I cannot remember one statement coming from the UN in the past two and a half months just commenting on it. At least they could dismiss it. They could say, well, that's not true. We, we, we don't know what you're talking about. It's just silence. At worst, you're in bed with them. And at best, you're ignorant. Either either uh, answer is is is, is bad. I don't I, I don't understand it. And I think after this war, we're going to have a huge investigation, really, 
by other neutral, supposed neutral actors that can shed some light on what the UN knew about all of these Hamas activities in their facilities. You heard about, I'm sure you heard about it, the UNRWA teacher who... Supposedly held someone hostage. Again, that's an Israeli report, but still, they dismissed it, but... uh, the schools, the copies of Mein Kampf that were found at the UNRWA schools, the munitions right outside, the tunnels underneath, the hospital. I saw an interview from Saturday Night News, Channel 12, with uh, one of the released kidnapped women. Um, and it was, it was just, it was mind-blowing, like what she was talking about, that she talks about their whereabouts you know, where they were at the beginning. At the beginning, they were in an apartment. And then um, when the airstrike started, I guess one of the one of the bombs hit the house next door. So they took her, her kids. At that point, she was with her husband, who's still there. And they brought them to the hospital. And from there, she and her daughters were released. She didn't mention the name of the hospital, but it was like, oh, yeah, the hospital where they brought us. You have a hospital that's being used for terror. And and still, going back to your earlier point, this idea that, I'm paraphrasing now, but Hamas can never do any evil, but no matter what we do, it seems like anything that Israel does is evil. We and, do a careful military campaign, we're evil. And the argument is that Israel is, is a democratic state. It should be held to higher standards. Absolutely. We shouldn't be held to the same standards as Hamas. But again, if you have a terrorist organization inside Gaza solely responsible for the mayhem that's happening right now, why is the world not rallying to disarm them, to destroy them, to do something to get them to to release the hostages instead of shifting the focus on Israel? There's one entity that is causing all this. The, The war could be over tomorrow if they laid down their arms and released the hostages. All of the suffering could stop tomorrow. But instead of condemning Hamas and maybe trying to disarm them and destroy them or whatever, come up with some solution of how to get rid of them, all the attention is focused on how to get a ceasefire, but not a ceasefire with Hamas gone, just a ceasefire. In other words, allow Hamas to continue to govern in Gaza. I don't recall anywhere else in the world where that has been the case. Completely. And and especially knowing what we know about how humanitarian aid comes in, doesn't go to the Gazans. Humanitarian comes in, weapons, captagon pills, tons of stuff inside the humanitarian aid. So it's like, what, we're supposed to give them a timeout so that they can take a break after taking so much speed and the synthetic meth and get more army, like get more supplies. And it's, it's crazy to me, but I, the ceasefire is a whole conversation to get into in terms of the like, as a Jew, and I want a ceasefire and ceasefire is the only way for, for peace. And it's like, wait, are you guys, are you guys, are we watching the same, are we part of the same world? Like ceasefire does not equal peace in this scenario. And people keep claiming that it does. And then to have it come from people at the level of the UN I mean, it's just trickle down effect, I guess, that if you have institutions or you have, you know, national leaders saying, oh, ceasefire now, or that's the option, or that's like the peaceful option, or, you know, I care about human life, so this is what we should do, then how are you not going to be in a situation where like average citizens 
say, oh, yeah, that that's the right approach because UN said it or that national leader said it or whatever. Like it gives them it's it's like the strength under their wings. Like, how can we expect them to to think differently, I guess? You know, everyone's selling a story, right? They're selling a story. We're selling a story. Piers is selling a story. Biden's selling a story. Trump's selling a story. People don't really buy our story anymore. They see stuff from the IDF. They see like the footage, like, eh, no. But, you know, they also don't buy what's coming out of the Hamas leadership's mouths. Hamas leadership is like, we're going to kill every Jew. And then you see these like pundits on these panels and they're just like, Hamas, I mean, they're like chill with Jews. They're like cool with Jews. And then they're like, wait, but Sinwar just literally said yesterday, like him on a panel, he just said, October 7th, we want it to happen over and over again until we kill all the Jews. Like, nah. There's this kind of suspension of belief. What What are you experiencing in terms of seeing how how people receive the reports coming out of here? And also you're in a very unique position to also be Danish and Israeli, if you can speak to that as well. That experience in itself has been mind-blowing. The fact that I'm half Israeli, half Danish has, in many people's eyes, discredited me completely. I should not even be allowed to cover this war because I'm, by definition, I'm partial, I'm biased. And that's been quite frightening to me because I don't, again, remember other wars where someone who's got roots in one of those countries were has been dismissed because of his ethnic uh, background in Ukraine and Russia, for example. And it's seen as an advantage if you speak the, the language. Here, I'm being just dismissed as, a, as an Israeli propagandist. And by extension, everything I... Uh, pass on coming from Israel, whether it be statements, whether it be IDF figures or whatever it might be, I'm being seen as a Zionist propagandist passing on unfiltered, uh, unverified information. Now, there is, of course, you can criticize, you can, you can criticize IDF for the way that they've been behaving for decades. It goes without saying. They've been caught lying many times, first of all. And the most recent major thing that they lied about was the killing of Shireen Abu Akleh, the Al Jazeera journalist who was killed in Jenin in May 2022. Uh, shortly after she was killed, the IDF immediately said, uh, and the government, by the way, said it was Palestinian uh, terrorists who killed her. Like Fast forward a year later, Israel finally admitted there was most likely an Israeli bullet that killed her after the rest of the world said the same. They had come to the same conclusion. So that's just one example of why IDF has obviously been caught lying before. The things they've been doing in the West Bank, appalling, covering up all kinds of things, turning a blind eye to settler violence, all of these things. So they are making it very, very difficult for journalists to pass on whatever it is that they're saying, simply because they don't have a very good track record. But again, to compare that to what Hamas says and to treat that information the same way is insane. It's the same as saying, well, the United States also committed war crimes or whatever in Iraq, so you should treat the same statements coming from the, from Washington uh, the same way as you would treat anything coming from Islamic State. Nobody would do that. But here it's being treated the same. So it doesn't matter what the Israeli army releases of footage. Uh, it, the, the, the overwhelming evidence of Hamas tunnels, for example, still dismissed. It's staged. It's not there. 
even when they bring in journalists, they're saying, well, they are not allowed to, to be free in there. They have to be with the army, which is, yes, that's true. But they can see with their own eyes that this is a tunnel that wasn't built yesterday. It's not like the IDF built this tunnel in two weeks. Uh, to me, that's it's extreme that you would treat information from one party the same way as you would treat uh, information coming from a terrorist organization. It's really crazy with the with their numbers, right? Like there will be a strike, and then within twenty minutes, an hour, they're like five hundred people dead. It's not four hundred and ninety-two. It's not five hundred and thirteen. It's not like three hundred and eighty-one. It's five hundred. Like we're still counting. We're still counting bodies. We're still identifying bodies, but they somehow have some advanced Hamas technology that lets them identify the number of casualties within an hour. And then it's taken at face value. One thing is the number. That's one thing. But the second thing is that nobody's asking how many terrorists were killed? Exactly. The 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 current figures are something like twenty thousand. Twenty thousand. Twenty thousand, right? And then um it came up in that Piers, Shank, Douglas. And Douglas is like, look, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna give credence to numbers released by the Gaza Health Ministry. That's Hamas. Um, but it's something over seven thousand terrorists. And Shank is just like, no, absolutely not. There's no way. That's blah, blah, blah. Over and over again, we're seeing everyone foist blame on anything that happens. We know about the use of child soldiers. They're foisting blame for everything on Israel, IDF. Even the unfortunate and completely heartbreaking story that came out like last week with those three kidnapped young men who were accidentally killed by IDF soldiers What's been so hard for me is in the wake of that absolute tragedy that people are trying to extrapolate from that, that this somehow demonstrate that the entire war is flawed, that Israel's strategy is aggressive, that these soldiers somehow are too trigger happy. Instead of saying, hold on, wait a second, we're in a situation, this is the longest, if I, if correct me if I'm wrong, I believe this is the longest military campaign in Israel's history, like in terms of this kind of fighting. Against the terrorist organization? Yeah, from what I understood. Well, the, well, it depends on how you look at it. Obviously, the second intifada was never ending, but it wasn't intense like this. It wasn't like, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I, this. first of all, this is extraordinary in Israeli history. And also the, the type of warfare that you have in these like close urban settings with these tunnels. Um, there were reports that came out last week that, you know, they placed, Hamas placed um, dolls, like children's dolls, playing these kind of crying soundtracks so that the soldiers thought, you know, we can't go into that building because there's a lot of babies there. So I can't even imagine what these these soldiers are going through to have, you know, these strange sounds and snipers and incendiary devices waiting for them and the tunnels and to just be around there and to have experienced this country so small, right? This isn't, this isn't a country the size of the States. Almost everyone here knows someone who's been affected by October 7th and then to be fighting this war. So to me, it's been so hard to see how people have been trying to take that incident as something that demonstrates, you know what, this is proof that the war is, was a terrible idea is a bad idea that, that, instead of saying this is a really, really tragic 
you know, incident that demonstrates how difficult this war is, how tragic this is. Can you, can you speak a bit to that? I mean, where is this catching you? I would say, first of all, you're absolutely right in the fact that it's being weaponized. This tragedy is being weaponized by those who are trying to discredit everything Israel is doing. And you can absolutely criticize Israel for the amount of airstrikes, for the also for not being precise enough and to dropping bombs where they know that civilians are, but they justify it because Hamas are there. But to start weaponizing a tragedy and to say, oh, look at what they do to their own. Imagine what they'll do to us. This is, first of all, obviously they broke the army's guidelines. That goes without saying. Those soldiers should absolutely not have shot at people waving a white flag with no shirts on. But these people have been fighting in some of the most ridiculous places that you can be as a soldier where you're fighting uh, terrorists who are in civilian clothes. You have no idea who's all of a sudden going to appear with just civilian clothes and maybe an RPG on his uh, on his shoulder or pretend to be uh, a civilian and then blow himself up. You, you don't know. So these soldiers are under immense pressure. The urban warfare is... Uh, probably the worst in the world, this, this kind of uh, urban war warfare. We saw something in Mosul also uh, against ISIS, but this is a whole different level. And there are so many of them. Israel estimates that Hamas has 24,000 members in their battalions all across uh, the Strip. Now, those are just Hamas members that they know of. Then there is Islamic Jihad. Then you have all the other people who are affiliated who can also grab a gun and start start shooting if they want to. And Israel estimates that they've killed roughly 8,000. So imagine how long this, take, this takes. It's extremely uh, exhausting for the soldiers to be in this kind of environment. So I think there should be lessons learned from this, obviously. I think probably soldiers who have gone through the things that they have gone through when they start shooting people who are just appearing out of the blue with no shirt, clearly something happened to these soldiers that they're so affected that they start shooting. Uh, I think it, that there should be lessons learned, but I think also lesson learned in how this has been weaponized. I think that's pretty cynical to start weaponizing it like that. To be honest, I kind of waited to the sponsor time the small podcast inside our podcast. It's kind of vibe here, you know, elegant. I, I, I don't know. It suits me. You do look really fresh, elegant, classy, refined. Like it's nothing too, it's nothing too pronounced. It's nothing that's taking over everything, but it's a little bit of a, you've leveled up. We're leveling up and you can too. <laughs> <laughs> Classic move. <laughs> and you can too with solid gold earrings and body jewelry made in america eco-friendly my family-owned business in new york city where i'm from just visit zahavjewelry.com jewelry with one l of course tomorrow's gonna be the 80th day and it's it's an exhausting run um, morale feels pretty low. This seems to be the beginning of winter. You know, it's cold inside an apartment in Tel Aviv, obviously for the soldiers, both at the strip and also on the Northern border with Lebanon, which it's like bated breath. I don't even want to talk to you about Lebanon because I'm afraid of jinxing that front somehow. 
um, let's say we get, I, there will be a day after, right? We just don't know when it'll be. Some of the estimates are saying that the heavier fighting will be kind of starting to wind down late January. Um, that's the current discourse. Where, where do you see this going? I think you're, you're, you're in a really unique position to be seeing also Israeli media, Israeli government, how they're covering this, also how it's being perceived abroad, these kind of backdoor diplomatic discussions that are happening. And there seems to be one party over and over again who are not really hearing from, unfortunately, and that's for some obvious reasons, but the Palestinians in Gaza itself is... Could you shed some light on how you see this going or how you hope it w would go, maybe? First of all, I uh, see Israelis more and more criticizing the government for not having any strategy for the day after, which is absolutely true. Can't fight a war like this with no strategy other than let's eradicate Hamas. It's basic. It's, uh, it's a populist slogan. It's come up with something specific. That's number one. Number two, if you look at what Israelis want, very few would like to see the Palestinian Authority in there. Very few. We're talking 10% maybe. Nobody would like to see Hamas. Uh, around 23% would like to see moderate Arab regimes. Some would like to see some sort of an international force with other institutions like the UN, whatever. And then there are those who would like to, to reoccupy Gaza. Now, now they are, of course, trying to take advantage of the situation. They hope that somehow they can get political support to go back in and to reoccupy, which would be a nightmare for everyone involved, for the soldiers, for Israel in general. And then you have the Palestinians who nobody is asking. Nobody's asking them. It's crazy how the international system is talking over both the two parties who are involved in this conflict like their children. And they're saying, we need a two-state solution. We need the Palestinian Authority to govern. A Palestinian Authority, which is incredibly corrupt, which is despised by the majority of Palestinians. 90% would like to see P P President Abbas resign now. And if you actually ask them, which nobody's doing, but if you ask them, most people support Hamas. It's as simple as that. Now, if you start talking about leaders, then it becomes a bit more interesting because then Hamas doesn't have as much support. Then it's actually Mawan Baguti, who's the most popular figure. He is a terrorist who was a key figure in the Second Intifada. He's serving life in jail now in Israeli prison. He's been in prison for 20-something years but he's seen as a hero among Palestinians. So when you have him, Ishmael Haniya, which is the Hamas leader, and uh, President Abbas, if you have those three against each other, Mawan Baguti would, would win. Now, he's not a saint. Let's, let's start with that. He might not be Hamas, but he's not a saint. He's a terrorist. He was involved in uh, the Second Intifada. So really, the conclusion is that Palestinians would like to see armed resistance in some way. They don't, they don't want a normal two-state solution with the Palestinian Authority. They don't. And Israel also doesn't want that. So why is it that the international community is trying to impose something on two parties that don't want this? It is the definition of, if you want to talk about colonialism, there you go. The Western people know better than the people who are actually on the ground.
Uh, it might be that they're right, in theory, that that solution would be best. But if the people don't want it, then I don't understand how we haven't learned anything from Iraq, Afghanistan, all of these places where you think you can drop some idea and say, fine, live with it. Thank you so much, Yotam Confino, for joining us today. It was my pleasure, Ames. Really Merry Christmas. And absolutely Merry Christmas to you and to everyone else in Israel who's celebrating. Thank you to Shema, Jonathan Gall, Maya Schlesinger, Dor Comet. I'm Amy Sapan. This is October 7th, Emotionally Raw Coverage. If you liked what you heard in this episode, then listen to our other episodes. And if you want more Emotionally Raw coverage, well, there's a few ways you can do that. You can follow us over on Instagram, Patreon, both with the handle October 7th, the podcast. And if you just feel like saying hi, feel free to shoot us an email, October 7th, the podcast at gmail.com. Until next time, stay safe and stay tuned.